Hello, Duncan here. You're listening to a special episode of Primitive Culture, a Trek event podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it, which was recorded live at the Gilorle Library in Guernsey. I was there doing an event about my book, Star Trek The Human Frontier, which, a bit like this podcast, looks at Star Trek in terms of its literary, cultural influences. And the library very kindly allowed me to record the session and put it out as an episode of the podcast. The audio quality might not be quite as high as you are used to from us, because obviously I, I just have my recording device there on the stage with me. Hopefully you'll be able to make out at least what I and my very kind host, Laura Perkins, are saying. And with any luck, you'll at least be able to work out what the audience questions were, even if they're a little bit on the faint side. Uh, so anyway, I hope you enjoy the discussion. It was a pleasure for me to be invited to the library to talk about my book and um, to talk about Star Trek more in general. So I hope you enjoy it. This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. I've also been an opportunity to buy Duncan's book, um, Star Trek The Human Frontier, after the talk. So, without further ado, now that's out of the way, I'd like to welcome our special de- guest, Duncan, to the stage. Hello. Many of you. So many of you may know Barrett already um, for his historical books, um, Hitler's British Isles, G.I. Brides, and the Girls Who Went to War. But after a marathon rewatch of Star Trek, he has also rekindled his passion for the future. Is that right? It is absolutely. I mean, I I, I used to talk about myself as a sort of lap Star Trek fan. I was very much in Star Trek uh, in the 90s. I kind of got into it as a teenager. Uh, when Next Gen was still on the air, I watched all of Deep Space Nine and Voyager in first run. The combination, I think, of Insurrection and Enterprise slightly killed my fandom for a while. And also it was around the time I was going off to university, so I became a sort of lapsed fan. I'd pop on the odd episode now and then, but for the most part, I kind of Star Trek didn't have a big place in my life. And then it was actually um, in 2015, my son was born and he wouldn't sleep at night. Uh, and so I had to stay up with him, like cradled on my chest, basically, all night long. I had to find something to watch on the TV with the headphones on. So I started going back to my old Star Trek DVDs and kind of getting back into it. Um, and then with 2016, obviously, was the anniversary year. Um, and by that point, I'd kind of got enough back into it that I decided to go along with this um, 
rewatch project, which Trek FM, who are the network that I now host a podcast for, were running, which was basically as a celebration of the 50th anniversary of Star Trek to rewatch every episode, all 720 something of them. From beginning to end, which, if you work it out, is about two episodes a day you have to average, which is not an inconsiderable uh, amount of Star Trek to get through. And funnily enough, it was the same time that I was coming over here to Guernsey to research my occupation book. So I was spending my daytimes out interviewing, uh, you know, 80 and 90 year old people about living through the Second World War and then rushing back to my flat and, you know, sticking on an episode of Next Gen or Voyager or something and trying to kind of keep up to breast with my, with my rewatch project. So weirdly for me, Guernsey and Star Trek are kind of almost inextricably linked. It's interesting as well that um, you spoke to Ira Bear, didn't you, about um, his inspiration for the Bajoran occupation. And did you say that he'd watched, watched um, a documentary about Guernsey and Jersey in the Second World War? I think it was a drama, actually. Yeah, I mean, this, was, this really astounded me. I, um, funnily enough, because I wrote this book about the occupation, and partly as a way of getting a plug-in for that, my podcast that I do, which is a podcast called Primitive Culture, which I should warn anyone, by the way, who's going to ask a question later. I'm taping this session and we're going to, we're planning to put it out as an episode of Primitive Culture. So, you know, you may find yourself on my podcast if you, if you put your hand up, but don't be scared. Um, Clara, my co-host and I recorded an episode about, uh, the occupation, particularly not so much the Bajoran occupation in Deep Space Nine, but the occupation of the station in the sixth season, the early, uh, first six episodes of the sixth season, uh, where you have that, um, Dominion occupation of Deep Space Nine. Because I thought there was an interesting parallel there with this idea of the kind of contrast between the Dominion occupation of the station and the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. You know, the Cardassian occupation of Bajor being this very brutal, uh, very repressive, very violent, you know, people being sent to labour camps, uh, people being killed in public, you know, really awful kind of thing. And then this kind of... Uh, softer, for want of a better word, occupation, which is very much, I suppose, the situation in the Channel Islands, you know, was this idea that the occupation here was supposed to be the model occupation. Uh, and obviously, in various ways, it maybe didn't live up to that reputation. But certainly compared to, say, the occupation in France or Holland or elsewhere in, in Europe, there was that idea to sort of try and see the Channel Islands occupation as one that could be spun in a kind of positive way. And that was something the Germans were very invested in, was the idea that uh, when it came time to occupy Britain, they could say, look, the Channel Islands was this kind of, this is, this is how we intend to occupy your country, and, and, you know, it won't be as bad as you think, kind of thing. And so we did this whole episode of the podcast all about the parallels, of which there were quite a lot that we found in the end, between the occupation of the Channel Islands and that six-episode arc in Deep Space Nine. Um, and then I said at the end, I mean, you know, I'm not saying that the writers of Deep Space Nine knew anything about the Channel Islands or, you know, were inspired by the Channel Islands story when they were writing this. I think it's just a coincidence. And then as it happens, I was at the big Star Trek convention in October in Birmingham. Uh, and I had a chance to have a chat with Iris Stephen Bear. Uh, and so I gave him a copy of my book because I, I said to him, look, you know, I've just written this whole book all about uh, an occupation. I grew up watching Deep Space Nine and fascinated by all these stories that you wrote of occupation. I'm sure that's one of the reasons that this topic has always appealed to me. And one of the, the you know, consciously or otherwise, one of the things that kind of uh, sort of pushed me in this direction and he said, oh, that's so funny, because when I was just gearing up to start work on Deep Space Nine, uh, I was watching this drama, I think it's called Enemy at the Door. It was like a big, uh, it, was, it, it wasn't a documentary, it was, it was a drama set in the Channel Islands during the occupation. Uh, and he said, and that was a big influence on me writing Deep Space Nine. Mm. So weirdly, uh, I mean, this is, I think, I found this thrilling, because it kind of brought two whole strands of my life uh 
you know, right together. But essentially, the Channel Islands history of the occupation is a part of Star Trek as much as, you know, many things are. And really, all the stuff that I've done, I mean, both the book, The Human Frontier, and my podcast, is really about looking at Star Trek as a product of uh, principally writers. I mean, we do sometimes talk about design and other elements like that. But really, the inspirations on Star Trek, historical inspirations, literary inspirations, uh, films that have inspired the writers in various ways, and the ways that all these elements of our own culture and our own history have kind of fed into Star Trek's uh, storytelling and Star Trek's kind of imagined future. The reason it's called primitive culture is... um, because in the film First Contact, uh, when they, they go back to what is, you know, not, not too far in our future, basically, Deanna Troy says, this is a primitive culture I'm trying to blend in. So basically the idea that, you know, the culture that we live in is the primitive culture as far as Star Trek's concerned. And so the podcast is really looking at how does our primitive culture and our history feed into Star Trek's kind of future storytelling. It's interesting that um, allegorical storytelling has been quite prominent since the beginning of Star Trek, um, mm. from way back from the original series. And why do you think that is? It's, um, we, we use that mode of storytelling, or that they use that mode of storytelling to um, address certain topics. Is it maybe maybe because the sci-fi world is a, a safe space to discuss something that's a bit more controversial? I think the classic answer, I suppose, uh, and it probably has a lot of truth to it, is that uh, it was a way of getting things past the census. You, you know, you could uh, talk about uh, sort of hot button issues, sort of ripped from the headlines, issues allegorically in ways that you couldn't tackle more directly. I mean, Gene Roddenberry, before he made Star Trek, he made this uh, series called The Lieutenant. And he actually cast Michelle Nichols in an episode of that series, which was dealing with racism in the military. Um, and the episode proved so controversial that I think not only... It did it not get aired and it led, I believe it led to the cancellation of that series, but the networks uh, refused to pay for it. Like they, they, they basically stopped paying at that point. They were so horrified by this episode, which was looking at uh, the issue of racism. And this was, I think, one of the reasons that Roddenberry ended up doing Star Trek and looking for these kind of allegorical ways of um, dealing with certain issues. I mean, I suppose these days, it, it becomes problematic in some ways because then you look at certain Topics and, and Star Trek is sort of almost inherently allegorical. And it's, it's interesting to me because I'm interested in the kind of literary historical uh, influences. And obviously a lot of that feeds into what we might think of as allegory. So, <clears throat> so if you're thinking of, um, you know, something like the Second World War, uh, yes, it will kind of play out in an allegorical rather than the literal fashion. Um, on the other hand, sometimes I think what that can mean is that when you have something like LGBT representation in Star Trek, a lot of people have been very critical that up until very recently, really with Discovery, and to some extent with with Beyond, you had this kind of, uh, you did have this same-sex relationship, but it was like blink and you'd miss it. And I'm sure a lot of the markets that that film was targeted at were intended to miss it. It was so kind of uh, subtle. Discovery, you finally got people, you know, actually identifying as gay, talking about the fact that they're gay and so on. Uh, up till then, Star Trek had always dealt with, uh, I mean, I'm just giving this as an example, LGBT issues uh, through allegorical means. And in some ways, although that could be quite effective and it could be quite um, engaging uh, uh, and was quite successfully done at the time, I think a lot of people felt once you got to a certain point, certainly once you got to, say, Enterprise, when it was not at all cutting edge to have gay characters on TV, the fact that they're still doing these storylines allegorically rather than actually having a gay member of the crew comes to seem 
almost a bit of a cop-out. So I suppose there's that interesting thing with Alibic. Yes, it can allow you to push the boundaries, but if you're falling back on it in a way and not actually, you know, when you could be doing more, then there's a danger that it becomes a bit sort of cosy somehow. In, in some um, in some cases as well, as gender and sexuality and um, races, racism, that kind of that kind of topic, it seems that... Um, Star Trek, in some ways, lacks subtlety in the way it handles it, or handles mm-hmm. it in such in a way that it thinks it's being progressive, but the writers have kind of missed the mark a bit. Like, for example, the cogenitor in Enterprise. It's, it's it seems like they're trying trying to be progressive and to talk about transsexuality, but they've kind of missed the mark a bit. And I find that a lot of LGBT viewers might find it insincere. Perhaps. Yeah, I think, I mean, also, I suppose there's an element of situating things in their time frame. So I don't know really that Cogenitor was about trans issues. Do you, do you know what I mean? I, mean yeah. I think sometimes we can read these things retrospectively and stuff. I mean, you could say the Trill, uh, you, you know, many people in the trans community have sort of um, identified with, with Jadzia Dax, for example, with, trans, with, with, with Trill characters. I don't think that was really a way that they were necessarily thinking about those characters at the time that they were writing it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right that Star Trek has not always, has not always been as progressive as it might have been. On the other hand, I would say sometimes these kind of allegorical treatments, I mean, if you think of uh, the classic one is the kind of, you know, half yeah, black and white faces uh, in exactly. Yeah. And I think that that, yes, is very obvious. It's not subtle. It's kind of silly on one level. But it makes the point very strongly. Do you know what I mean? You kind of can't miss that point. It's very clear. It's very, uh, it's, it's black and white, you know. It's kind of, um, it, and I think sometimes allegory can allow you to do that. And it can, I suppose, it, you know, maybe there's an assumption because most people, I don't, I was gonna, I was gonna make a huge assumptions. So most people I know who watch Star Trek are sort of fairly liberal minded, are fairly kind of, um, sort of forward thinking, uh, individuals, and I know there are like, you know, th- there was this big thing about, you know, Trek against Trump, and then all these Trek for Trump people started coming out of the woodwork. So, there, you know, it can go both ways. But I suppose, um, maybe it's one thing if you're preaching to the converted. If you're actually trying to open the eyes of someone who maybe is a bit blinkered around a particular issue, whether that's racism or whether that's, uh, you know, LGBT issues or even trans issues or whatever, Sometimes I think those kind of allegorical treatments can be more effective than maybe we give them credit for. So, for example, the episode Rejoined in Deep Space Nine, I think there's a strong argument that by the time Deep Space Nine was on TV and Deep Space Nine was pushing boundaries in lots of other ways in terms of narrative, uh, in terms, you know, with the serialization and so on, it was a very bold, very um, sort of creatively original show. Um, Arguably, they could have done more in terms of, of that issue. And I know that actually Iris Stephen Bear was saying, because uh, at, at that convention, I don't know if you got to see the documentary. Um, yes. yeah, yeah, right. So the, the big doc- retrospective documentary, which he's made, which is, I think, going to be released later this year. Yeah. Is, the, the last update was it should be this year. It's what, what we left behind. It's yeah. a documentary retrospective of Deep Space Nine and all the things that they wish they could have done, and all the, like, looking back on all the things they did. And one, of, and one of the things that he talks about in that documentary is he felt that they failed on LGBT representation, for example, like uh, that, they, that they could have done more. But they did do this episode rejoined, which um, at the time I think was, you know, was somewhat progressive, at least in that it had these two female uh, 
actresses kissing. It had this kind of quite serious romantic storyline between the two of them. A lot of people subsequently I've heard say that they felt it was a cop-out because the reason that they were attracted to each other was because in a previous life they'd been married when one of them was a man and one was a woman. And, and also, and then once you start thinking, oh, is this a trans allegory as well, then it becomes even more complicated. But the, essentially the, the reservation about that storyline was that they find a way of sort of doing a gay storyline but doing it through a heterosexual uh, relationship in the past. Now, I can see that. I can, like, I can see that issue. But I would say, for me personally, I think that storyline... As a piece of drama, it's very effective. It's a heartbreaking episode. It's very well produced, very well directed, very well acted, and so on. And I, I can imagine that there are people who it would touch something. It, 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 it might resonate with something in them. Do you know what I mean? Even, yeah. even if you can have that reservation about it, I still think it, it, it might have that beneficial impact on certain members of the audience potentially because it makes that issue. It gives you a way into that issue, I suppose, in a way that maybe at that time was difficult for a lot of people. It's, it's interesting. Another episode I feel that does that, one that might miss the mark on quite a few levels, is, um, but also has this very this amazing speech at the end, is The Outcast, TNG. Yeah. Um, a single gender race or like a non-gendered race, um, and one of the characters saw her identifying as female, and she, says, she has a speech at the end before she's essentially corrected and says i am female i was born that way i have those feelings those longings on my life and it is not unnatural i'm not sick because i feel this way and i find that even though the episode misses the mark in some ways that kind of redeems it at the end and i feel mm. that even if maybe perhaps one person is affected by that season episode and thinks yes i'm going to re reevaluate my thinking maybe that's all it's uh, all you need, really. Yeah, and I mean, I would agree. I, I th again, a lot of people quite hard on the outcast. I feel like that's a good episode of Star Trek. I, I, I suppose with both those episodes, I don't think there's anything really wrong with that. Those episodes. I think if the issue is that Star Trek should have done more, I completely agree with that. I think by the time, certainly by the time you got to Enterprise, probably by the time you got to Voyager, to be honest, there were campaigns for. Uh, there was something called the Voyager Visibility Project. There were campaigns about LGBT visibility in Star Trek even then. Um, they should have been doing something more. But those episodes on their own terms and in that sort of allegorical sense, I think they're both very effective. And they're both, partly because they're both very moving. And you're right, you know, say with The Outcast, I know some people have said, for example, even Jonathan Frakes has said, uh, and he says this now, I've no idea if he actually said this. It sort of represents as if he was saying this at the time. Who knows? Maybe he was. I mean, you know, let's hope he was. But uh, these days... Whenever anyone asks him about the outcast, he says they should have got a man to play that androgynous character. Uh, and then it would have been two male actors having these romantic scenes together. Whereas the fact that they got a woman, again, it's kind of always that, that balancing act to like, how do we, what's, what's the route where we can do something a little bit controversial, a little bit kind of um, progressive, but not really offend anyone along the way. But at the same time, so again, I can see the reservations that people have about that episode, but I think you're right, it's absolutely the emotional impact of that scene at the end um, on people who may not have thought, you know, gay conversion therapy was certainly a, a big thing then, and it, it just still exists, you know, now to some extent, uh, that it's, you know, maybe there's someone in the audience who's watching it who would not have been opposed to something like that and watches it and it slightly, you know, maybe just opens a tiny crack. So I don't know. I mean, I think there is always a danger with Star Trek that it does feel a bit 
sometimes it can feel a little bit complacent when it's not doing something really groundbreaking. But at the same time, actually, you know, you could say right from the beginning, there's been that use of allegory. There's been that way of kind of getting slightly around things. But like I say, look what happened to Gene Roddenberry when he tried to write a story about racism and do it like straight down the line. It blew up in his face. So I suppose there's that kind of question of, yes, maybe sometimes it feels a little bit tame for the members of the audience who are, you know, totally on board and signed up and, you know, on our way to the kind of post-capitalist utopian future. Uh, but I suppose there are other people watching as well. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say all Star Trek is perfect. I think there are definitely areas that, that could be improved. Um, but I think sometimes we, as fans, almost we can be the worst critics of Star Trek yeah. sometimes and, and, and make expectations that maybe are... I mean, I think it's good to have high expectations. But at the same time, I think... There's also an element of, for me, you know, credit where credit is deserved, you, you know, at whatever level it's deserved. And funnily enough, you know, doing that rewatch um, project, watching the whole of sort of complete works rewatch over the course of a year, uh, it did make me sort of reevaluate certain things. I mean, I think there are certain kind of fan assumptions. There are certain episodes that we know are like the top, you, you know, the one, the sort of five star episodes that we'll, we'll always go back to, you know, whether that's City on the Edge of Forever or Yesterday's Enterprise or... Um, in the pale moonlight or you, you know whatever it is um and i found when i was going through and watching the whole lot in this kind of blitz slightly mind melting uh <laughs> blitz working through the, the whole lot actually often the ones that i enjoyed more were not the ones that i already knew were brilliant and that's not to say that uh, i watched them and didn't think they were brilliant i, I still recognize what great episodes they were but i quite enjoyed some of the maybe less good episodes or the ones that i'd sort of forgotten about because i watched them once 20 years ago and then forgot all about it and never went back to them um and a lot of star trek episodes have something in there there's maybe it's a scene maybe it's a b plot i mean you know there are lots of episodes i think that have crappy A plot might have a fantastic B plot and no one ever goes back and chooses to rewatch them unless they're doing a kind of uh, proper rewatch because, you know, you almost forget that that stuff is there. And I suppose part of what I think, particularly as Star Trek develops from Next Gen onwards, particularly sort of from Michael Pillar onwards, where you get all this kind of character stuff, all this kind of, you know, the pillar filler, as they call it, the kind of... Um, you know, really the sort of, you could say almost like soap opera side of Star Trek, but the kind of character interactions, the kind of day-to-day -day life of of these shows and this kind of life in the future, adding the sort of texture, I suppose, to that universe and to that, to that lifestyle almost. Um, that is baked into every single episode. And sometimes, you know, if you're only going back and selectively picking out the kind of highlights, the sort of greatest hits... You can miss some of that texture, I think. And, and that is part of what Star Trek is as well, as all the kind of, uh, as hitting all the high notes. I find um, the series, in my mind, that's particularly good for that kind of thing, the, the character episodes was Deep Space Nine, because they, mm -hmm. they gave some of the background characters or the, the secondary cast more times to expand their characters. And I thought um, that was a really, a really great use of um, their episodes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Deep Space Nine, I, I, I mean, you know... I, I, for me, it's my favourite Star Trek series, yeah, I think. Biased, I mean, <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of um, people of my generation who sort of grew up watching Deep Space Nine in first run, it's one of the reasons that documentary that Iris Stephen Bear made is quite interesting is because part of it is sort of re about reevaluating Deep Space Nine, you know, 25 years on. Uh, they were always the middle child. They were always the kind of um, the least successful 
up until enterprise, I suppose, but the least successful of the, you know, they were competing against next gen, uh, which was much, I mean, next gen was successful on scale, unlike anything before almost. Uh, they were never going to kind, they were always sort of in next gen shadow and then kind of Voyager took over and Voyager was the flagship show for the UPN network. Uh, they had all this stuff riding on them that Deep Space Nine didn't. On the other hand, I think that's one of the reasons that Deep Space Nine is such a great show, because they were, they could get away with anything, basically. Uh, they realised, and I think Iris Stephen Bearer said this, you know, they realised they could, um, they didn't really have anyone watching over their shoulder in the same way as the other Star Trek shows did. Uh, and I think he, he talks about how Vic Fontaine, who's this, you know, sort of 1950s, 50s, 60s, holographic, uh, crew, Las Vegas crooner. So, I can I can see why he says it's a slightly crazy addition to a Star Trek series, particularly in the middle of this serious ongoing war yeah. story. Uh, he sort of said he, he felt like once once he got away with introducing this recurring character, he sort of felt he could do anything because they clearly just didn't care less what he was doing. And I think you're right. I mean, something like the, the obvious example is uh, It's Only a Paper Moon, yeah. which is an episode which is basically almost... a well, it's not quite a two-hander, but the heart of the episode is between Vic and Nog, you know, neither of them main cast members. And yet it's a very strong uh, emotional drama for both of them. One of them is a hologram, you know, he's not really a real person. And one of them who's this character who really, to begin with, was kind of comic relief more than anything else. And yet they can have this really intense personal drama that where the stakes are enormously high for both of them. And it absolutely works. And, and that is the strength of DS9 is they can, the writing was so good on that show and their character, they knew their characters so well that I think they could, um, get something great out of almost, uh, sometimes the flimsiest of premises. I mean, not to say that, that was a flimsy premise, but you know, lots of episodes of DS9 that work that would never have worked on. So one that comes to mind me shows. is in the cards. Mm, the, yeah. the A-plot, uh, I think it's the A-plot, focuses around um, Jake and Nog trying to get a baseball card to cheer up Cisco. And it's such a... It seem, doesn't seem like much of a, a story. It doesn't seem very deep on that level. But um, it's quite it's quite a heartwarming story. You get to see a bit of everybody. Everyone seems a bit better off after the episode. And it's just It seems like, an, like a breather between all the war stuff that's going on around it. Um, it's just... It's not something I think they would have taken the time with on the other series, perhaps. It's definitely a sort of um, almost kind of experimental episode, yeah. I think. I mean, not experimental in some kind of sci-fi sort of wacky way, but just as a kind of piece of TV. Because you're right, the stakes are so low in that, you, you know, do we get this baseball card or not? Um, and it's kind of farcical. Weirdly, I have to say, when I first watched that episode, I didn't like it. When I was a teenager watching DS9, I was totally in it for the war and the drama and the kind of big stake stuff. And I was like, why are they wasting 45 minutes on this trivial story? And I don't know if it's to do with getting older or, you know, or even like having kids or, you know, I don't know what it is or, or, or life throwing crap at you and, and, you know, understanding what it's like to feel like you need cheering up or, or whatever it is. But, um, Every time I watch that episode now, it has me in tears. It's just, it's, it's very flimsy. It's very funny. It's very, like, the character interplay is great. And by the end of it, it, it it's a kind of cheesy ending. You, you know, yeah. it's true, like, it's, it's a montage of everyone having been cheered up slightly by the events of this ridiculous story. But at the same time, there's something deeply moving about it. Because, I suppose, because you you buy into it. You believe in all those characters. You believe in that story. I think in a way that, I mean, you could see this as almost the opposite of what we were talking about, about allegory, yeah. in a way that even with Next Gen, 
And I'd say Next Gen did so much character work. You really grew to love those characters. But in Deep Space Nine, the characters somehow, there's something so rich about both the characters and the interactions between them. They can kind of do almost anything with them. You are totally, once you fall in love with those characters, they can, they can kind of get away with anything. They, um, I find of all the series as well, they're the ones that seem to evolve the most. You start yeah. off someone like Quark, who's, I mean, he, he doesn't change on a, a basic level. He's always an avarice and a greedy chari- character. And he's still that at the end, but he's got a, a more human side at the end. He's, he's a bit mm. more sympathetic. And you wouldn't have thought in series one that he would be interjecting in the war. He would be helping them to break the occupation. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and uh, you're right. I mean, yeah, in that uh, Dominion War arc, he ultimately becomes a kind of resistance, uh, I mean, briefly, sort of resistance operative uh, in the end. And there was, I read quite an interesting interview with Armin Shimmerman where he was talking about that and saying, you know, he actually thought that was quite an important thing to show with Quark. And this is something that is absolutely relevant to, you know, the occupation of the Channel Islands and some of the activities that people got up to and the risks that people took. Is he was sort of saying, well, it's easy to show Starfleet officers doing heroic things, but to show someone like this, you know, a civilian who is very self-serving, who's not, has never seen himself in a heroic light at all, suddenly put in this situation where he's like, okay, I've got to, I've got to do something. I've got to help. Uh, and actually steps up and, and does it that somehow that in itself is a more, that's a more interesting story. That's a more surprising story. And you're right. I mean, the character development in Deep Space Nine is sort of, unparalleled i think elsewhere in star trek if you think about nog compared to say harry kim in voyage (laughs) you know not only does nog get promoted a lot more and a lot more quickly but his you know he he has such a a huge journey and uh yeah poor old harry just really you know goes to the delta quadrant and goes nowhere comes back from the delta quadrant and the the ferengi that was tending bar when he left is now his lieutenant he's outranked him yeah yeah (laughs) oh well (laughs) you win some you lose some you know so I feel like we can't really talk about allegory in Star Trek without mentioning at least the Darmok, the episode of TNG. Mm. Um, so for anyone who doesn't remember, I know it's one of those classic episodes. Um, Picard and an alien captain are stranded on, a, on an alien planet with a, a danger imminent and they have no way of communicating. And um, it's it's very similar in, in that premise, in that, in that simple way of being like a, a follow-on to Arena from the mm-hmm. original series. Mm-hmm. But with a very different ending, and I wonder perhaps if that was maybe the, the viewers' expectations that that fed into that um, that change, or maybe maybe it was more the, the captain that they threw in this, that um, sorry um, <laughs> that um, informed that different ending. And also the two, the kind of general tone of the two series, I'd say as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I. Uh, I've talked a little bit about how history, literature, film and so on can influence Star Trek. Of course, Star Trek can influence Star Trek. And, you know, once you've got 50 years of history, and we see this absolutely with Discovery as well, of course, you you know, tying in, uh, slotting itself in sort of just before the original series almost, the extent to which Star Trek is influencing itself is kind of, uh, is never more, never been more uh, sort of significant than it it is now. But you're right, I mean... uh, I'm pleased you brought up Darmok. Darmok is probably my favourite next-gen episode. I feel like Darmok is the quintessential next-gen episode. It's the episode that uh, almost couldn't exist in any other Star Trek series, I think. It kind of sets the tone for the series. It does, absolutely, because it's all about diplomacy and it's all about kind of... um, I also feel like Picard is the ideal 
if, if you're going to beam one person down on that, I mean, I know they don't voluntarily beam him down on the mission, but like Picard is the right man for that job, unquestionably. You know, in a way that I don't know even if any of the other wonderful as they are Star Trek captains would have kind of uh, got through that situation no, the way he did. How, I'd, I'd like to see how Janeway handled that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah well, it would. <laughs> who knows? And you know, maybe she'd have been telling the story of Jane Eyre instead of uh, Gilgamesh. I don't know. But it's also an episode that is quite. Um, it means something to me for a number of reasons. I always like that episode. Um, as I mentioned, I was doing this rewatch project while I was here and I watched it. Um, the, when I came to that episode in my rewatch, it was at a particularly sensitive time for me. It was the morning after I was living in, um, a self-catering apartment in Varzon, just off Varzon Bay, a place called Waves, uh, near Crabby Jack. Some of you might know it. Um, and it was the night, it was the morning after the Brexit referendum. So I'd been staying up late at night watching all the sort of news coverage of the Brexit referendum and so on. Um, and went to bed reasonably confident that <laughs> we were going to be staying in the European Union. Uh, woke up to the news that we weren't and was a bit shocked and a bit horrified and a bit sort of, um, trying to work out how to process this. And while I was making the breakfast, I was watching Dharma because that was the, the only way I got through this rewatch was by like loading things up on my, iPad on Netflix and, you know, watching them while I was doing the washing up or making the breakfast or whatever. Um, and by the time I got to the end of that episode, which as I say, I've always loved, uh, I was just in floods of tears. I, it, it, it really spoke to me it, on that occasion in particular. I think partly because it made me realise growing up with Next Gen and, and with the other Star Trek series as well, but Next Gen was my kind of first introduction to Star Trek. That's how, how I first got into Star Trek. I think that Star Trek fans, certainly in my generation, and maybe Star Trek fans more generally, had I'd grown up with certain assumptions about what leadership was, about what um, a, a certain ideals. I mean, people always talk about the the positive ideals of, of Star Trek, whether that's kind of making peace, whether that's having compassion for your enemy, all these kind of uh, things. And I think it really put into contrast for me, you know, the fact that the Tamarian captain in that episode literally loses his life. Uh, and is willing to risk his life over in order to try and extend an olive branch to this culture, you know, to our culture, essentially, which is so alien, which is so different to try to say, look, this is us. We want to un- we want you to understand us. We want you to understand. Uh, we want you to understand us and we want to understand you as well. And Picard equally is able to match that. And yes, it wasn't his idea, but he's able to get on board. He understands it. He's able to share this uh, beautiful story from, you know, ancient earth culture is able to bridge that gap, to make that connection against such huge odds. And both of them such kind of selfless, uh, noble leaders, in a sense. And I suppose it was partly for me this happening in the context of this campaign where, you know, we'd had a, a politician murdered for expressing her beliefs. We'd had this Nazi propaganda plastered all over all these posters. We had this bus filled with lies. We'd had this kind of the, the dirtiest sort of dirty tricks political campaign I'd ever witnessed. And we had a referendum which had been called by a prime minister who was doing it purely out of self-interest and because he thought that he could control the result uh, and basically gambling huge amount on his own personal career one way or another. So I suppose for me, it, one reason it affected me so much on that occasion was it it just seemed like such a contrast. I sort of felt like, wow, Star Trek sold me a lie about what, you know, what life's going to be like. Or what the, you know, we've hopefully the future, go. we've got a long yeah. way to go. Exactly. I've never felt quite so much what a long way to go we had as watching, yeah. as, as watching the news coverage on the one hand and, and Darmok on the other. Uh, but I do also think it's a, it's a beautiful episode. I think it's a, it's a brilliant combination of kind of 
I suppose, again, that kind of personal drama, that riff, as you say, on Arena, which is quite clever. Uh, the whole idea of the Tamarian language. I know some people think it's ridiculous. I find it, I think it's quite beautiful, it's but I'm great, quite interested yeah. in language and literature and allegory and all these things. Uh, there's just so much in there in that episode. And I think it does really, um, it's absolutely the kind of calling card for next gen. If you want to say why, what is different about next gen versus the original series? Yeah. Look at those two episodes, you know, uh, although, you know, arena has, you know, an act of compassion from Kirk and it's, uh, you, you know, it's, it's not, it's not just a kind of it's fisticuffs. Not just violence, no. It's not, but there is a kind of, it is basically, that's the kind of core drama is the fight and the battle and the kind of ingenuity of the battle and Kirk as this hero with the ripped shirt and so on. And Picard, although he does get his, his nice new, jacket ripped uh in the process of darmok it is much more that the fact that the solution is going to be found in uh retelling you know ancient mesopotamian uh epic storytelling is like you couldn't be more next gen this kind of that like high culture comes to the rescue yeah. somehow in a way that is so uh key to to next year not only you know the epic of gilgamesh uh, which again, like doing my podcast, we went and read the Epic of Gilgamesh and looked at Darmok in relation to that, and that was quite interesting. But you know, there's that whole scene about Romeo and Juliet and yeah, Shakespeare, Juliet on, and balcony, Juliet on yeah. her balcony, exactly. And this idea that somehow, even you know, many hundreds of years into the future, our kind of cultural past and our where we've come from as a as a culture, I suppose, is going to be valuable in some way it's not just they're not just the relics you know there was the discovery short um calypso and there was all this sort of like betty boop and uh funny face and all these kind of random they were like these kind of random relics of the distant past and they'd almost lost their me it sort of seemed like they'd almost lost yeah. their meaning i suppose that's very different to next gen which is saying yeah we're still performing serrano de bergerac on the holodeck we're still uh performing shakespeare plays we're still you know reading our or, or Voyager, um, Janeway reading Dante in her spare time. You know, we're kind of this, this cultural legacy is still a part of our future. And however, wherever we go, wherever we take our society in the future, we're going to take all that with us. You know, it says something that um, Picard and Lily can have the conversation. She says, a, she, she quotes Melville, she'll, mm. she'll reference um, Captain Ahab and he'll know exactly what she's talking about. It says something yeah. that that still translates into the future in that in this um, story. Even though she never read it. Even though she never read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is fair enough. And, you know, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And, and Star Trek, has, I suppose, compared to a lot of science fiction, I think Star Trek has always been very literate and very kind of... Um, I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. You know, one, I think the people who've written Star Trek historically have been quite well read and quite uh, interested in history and in literature and in those kind of influences. Uh, but it's also inspired a lot of people to go and seek those things out. And I'm sure a lot of people watched Next, Next Gen growing up and that kindled an interest in Shakespeare one way or another or in Sherlock Holmes or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so it kind of can play both ways uh, and have a kind of beneficial effect um, not just in terms of these sort of lofty aspirations and kind of um, moral qualities, but in terms of really saying this stuff is important. This is part of who we are. And insofar as really Star Trek is sort of a, almost a manifesto for who we want to be, who we want to be is not just just and noble and compassionate and kind and and brave uh, but it's also grounded in the past and, and recognised, cultured and, and with a knowledge of our own history, whether that's the good or, you know, and the bad as well. I mean, if you look at something like Past Tense in Deep Space Nine, uh, you know, Cisco is someone who is very 
well read in some pretty bleak history one way or another um and obviously that's fictitious future history though it's starting to you know read the headlines now and then and start to think well you know how, how fictitious is it but i mean the fact that that's seen as almost a maybe not necessary but that, that's a very desirable quality in a captain to have someone who knows their history yeah. who understands where we've come from who can kind of it isn't just like Bashir kind of naively celebrating how great humanity is and how we've solved all the problems and kind of you know isn't life wonderful in the 24th century but who's kind of actually aware of what were the steps along the way you know where did horrific uh, injustices take place what are the kind of um what are the situations that can lead to that kind of thing? And, you know, can it or can it not happen again? Because I guess what Deep Space Nine does, which was quite radical for Star Trek at the time, is sort of says, well, you know, when push comes to shove, is this utopian society so uh, unshakable? Do you know what I mean? And the whole, you know, introduction of Section 31 and all these kind of issues to do with the Dominion War and kind of moral compromises. You get it again in Enterprise as well. This suddenly this kind of uncertainty about yes this future seems so perfect, but is that more fragile almost than we maybe like to believe? It's, yeah, it's interesting Deep Space Nine because they do explore that quite a lot. I mean, past tense, for example, Bashir uh, um, he asks um, if we're frightened or desperate enough, how will we react as humans? And I think the, the, another interesting one is the siege, siege of AR five five eight. Quark's comments about. Um, Humanity are a, a good and friend, wonderful, friendly people. But if you take away all their creature comforts, um, you'll be what was it? You'll be um, faced with the most nasty and violent of their tendencies. You'll be as, um, as same as um, the most violent and bloodthirsty Klingon. Mm, yeah, and absolutely, I think that's something that Deep Space Nine, again and again, is sort of not afraid to raise that kind of issue. And and I I like the show for that. I think it yeah, it does think bring a brave. kind of realism. Uh, you know, these are not perfect situations. These are not perfect people. They are very brave, very heroic, very brilliant people, but they are not these kind of lofty paragons in a way. They are, they do feel much more real and they, they, they crack under pressure sometimes and they, you know, they struggle with things like, like anyone would. And when you see episodes like that where there is real kind of combat stress or there is real kind of, um, another one I love is the ship. Uh, early fifth season Deep Space Nine episode, which I think doesn't really get. It's also I think it's the hundredth episode of, of DS Nine, so it's a sort of significant episode. But it's not. I don't think it's given the kind of credit that it's due in a way because I think that is really the almost a turning point to the, the whole of the sort of tone of the Dominion War. I think you can see the groundwork laid in that episode. This is the episode where they find this crashed Jem'Hadar ship. Uh, they're trying to. They want the ship. What they don't know is that there's a founder on the ship and the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta on the planet are trying to save the founder and uh, it all goes wrong and people end up being killed and it's it's a really grim story. Uh, and, and people behave quite badly. They're, they're, they're not their kind of ideal Starfleet selves. You know, they're under pressure and they're really struggling. Um, and, and, and it turns out that really they failed. In a sense, it's a mission that goes disastrously wrong because they don't... They almost they don't do what you think Star Trek would say that you should do, which is have some kind of trust with your enemy. They don't trust each other, and therefore people die, and it all goes horribly wrong. And that I think is a very bold storytelling decision, really, for Star Trek to to go in that direction. Um, and like I say, I, I I feel is a kind of almost a sort of um, key moment for that series going forward that it kind of 
it's, it's almost like setting out the store saying, okay, this is how we're going to deal with, with stuff from now on. It's, um, it's definitely not an episode that could have got through under Gene Roddenberry. I would, I would no. <laughs> no, I don't think he'd even have allowed... I love the no, bit he... where um, Jadzia's making some joke about something and Cisco basically bites her head off and says, you know, do you really think... You know, yeah, do you see really anyone laughing? There. Is this a situation where we want your brand of humour, basically? And just that kind of, like, um, real, realism of that, I suppose. Uh, whereas, you know, the kind of flippant comments and the thing are almost a sort of... You could say she's almost acting a sort of TV convention of like, oh, we'll make a joke out of everything. We're kind of quick. Exactly. Cool under pressure. We're quipping about this and that. Uh, And he's basically just saying, you know, we don't want this. You know, shut up (laughs) at this point. Yeah. um, So I think um, we've probably reached that point where we should... um we um, ask the audience if they have any questions. So if anybody mm-hmm. has any anything they want to ask, raise your hand and we'll get around to it. So otherwise we'll just keep talking. Yeah. Now, Duncan, you yeah. said you watched the whole of Star Trek uh, in one year. Mm-hmm. Want to know what the, the high point and the low point was for you? That's a good question. The weird thing is I found it it was a it was definitely an experience. It was sometimes a pleasurable experience. Sometimes it was a bit of a slog. Uh, I think what I felt was that the it was more about the little highs, if you know what I mean. It was more about the little undiscovered gems. I mean, we were talking before we came up here about, um, for example, there was a next-gen episode, Contagion, which I think is the second season episode, which I had seen once and completely forgotten about. And went back to it and loved it. And I was just like, wow, this, this, this is so much better than I was. And, and my expectations were low for those first two seasons of Next Gen because, you know, the kind of received wisdom is you skip them and go on season three onwards. There were some great episodes in there that I'd completely forgotten about. Uh, the Arsenal of Freedom would be another one from season one, I think. Fantastic episode uh, that I hadn't watched for probably 20 years. Um, and even in, in DS9 and Voyager, there were episodes where, I don't know, say um, sometimes you get a great B-plot that, uh, so say the episode Meridian, which is a pretty dire episode where Jadzia Dax falls in love with this guy from a planet that keeps sinking in and out of time or, or something. It's, it's awful. But it has a great B-plot. It's first uh, appearance of Jeffrey Combs, who becomes a big player in Star Trek. Amazing. And it's a, it's a pretty sleazy, creepy B-plot. But it's very well done. He is fantastic. It's got a great uh, punchline at the end with Quark. Yes, it's got yes. a great punchline at the end with Quark. Um, uh, this is the storyline for anyone who might vaguely remember it, where this guy, this creepy alien comes and wants a sort of, um, basically a sort of pornographic Holosuite program starring Major Kira. And Quark has agreed to, uh, I mean, sort of surprisingly, not necessarily topic, like ahead of its time almost in terms of the kind of things that happen now on the internet and so on with, um, you know, stealing people's photos and that kind of thing. But basically Quark is trying to source this kind of image, hollow image of Major Kira so that he can create this kind of sex fantasy program for this guy. And then, as you say, yes, at the end, uh, it ends up with the, it's Quark who's the sexual figure in, in his program, the guy's curious. I mean, it just, I mean, it, it sounds quite silly. It is quite silly, but it's a, it's a very well constructed and well played B plot in an otherwise totally forgettable episode and, that you would yeah. never go back and rewatch if and you were just a, choosing your highlights. Another thing about that episode is that it kind of introduces the Odo, Odo Kira dynamics. You see him reacting when she, she, um, mm. anyone who doesn't remember, um, she, she reaches out, holds his hand at the beginning of the episode 
to, to kind of back, make this guy back off and like, no, this is this is Odo. He's my he's my boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, you're and right. It it, um, it kind of introduces that. I mean, it's probably I, I can't remember exactly the time that starts, but it seems to introduce that as a more a more focused point that Odo's got this crush on her. Mm, that's an interesting point. Yeah. And again, you know, if you're going back and only watching episodes selectively, that's the sort of thing that you might miss in terms yeah. of the kind of, and not to say that that was even necessarily a case of like serialization and planning and sort of laying the groundwork for that storyline. Because I think with Odo and Kira, it was one of those ones that slightly came out of the actors playing yeah, something or, or even something. I feel like I heard that in that one, it was almost like a, a shot that came out, like in the edit, it almost, yeah. there was a sort of hint of something that no one had really been intending, like a look that he gave her or something in the edit it came out sort of looking slightly like he was, there was some kind of interest there. And then that sort of fed into the writing process and eventually kind of became an actual storyline. So um, as, as far as your rewatch goes, is there any, and we're talking about the highs and the lows, mm. do, you, do you have a favourite episode or at least favourite episode? Someone uh, during the course of that year asked me to make a list of my top, I don't know, top 10 or top five Star Trek episodes or something. And I tried to do it and I ended up with a list of my top 50. Yeah. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of how, how, how hard I found it. Oh, and a, a lot one, of them, I know exactly. And I had to come up with different categories for like how I was, how I was categorized. Cause there's just so many. And, um, you know, it's probably easier. It's easy for me to say now, oh yeah, Darmok's my favorite next gen episode. But especially when you've been watching the whole lot, there's so many that kind yeah. of, uh, are in your mind and you're, and you're kind of, Thinking of, I tend to try and avoid playing favourites like that. And one of the things that I like about doing this podcast that I do is that we, because we look at a different topic every fortnight, so, uh, and they're not necessarily, sometimes it might be one episode. So, um, for example, we um, recently did an episode on Les Miserables because it was on the, the BBC version, it was on the TV, uh, and I somehow forced myself to get through the entire book, which I felt was <laughs> on a par with getting but through the whole of Star Trek. Did you That's the question. I had it on an audio book, so I kind of slightly zoned out. So that's how I, that's how I managed to do Fair it. Enough. I had it on like one and a half speed, and I was I sort of felt like, does this count? I'm not sure if it counts as really reading it, but I was kind of, you know, I was, I was half there and half not. To be honest, I suspect a lot of people have read that section, and they been turning the pages and their eyes have been scanning down and whether they've taken it all in I don't know but um so we did an episode on that and Eddington in DS9 and, and that kind of arc um so I quite like the fact that most of my Star Trek watching these days is really <coughs> is dictated by slightly random things to do with the podcast that I'm doing will lead me towards certain episodes um at certain times rather than it being a case I suppose as it used to be when I was in my sort of lapsed uh, period where I would think, okay, I feel like watching a Star Trek episode and I'd have 700 and something to choose from and have to pick one. And it probably would always be the same, yeah. you know, the yeah. same few kind of old favourites. I quite like the fact that I, I get to see the, sort of see the wood for the trees in a way, you know, get to pick out the more random ones. Did you, what about a least favourite? Any, any contenders? I can't stand Prophet and Lace. Because, I mean, having said that DS9 is my favourite series, just because I think there are lots of bad Star Trek episodes, but I think that's an episode which manages to be both excruciatingly bad and unfunny and also quite offensive at the same time. And I think that's quite an achievement. I think think there are Star Trek episodes that are fairly offensive, there are Star Trek episodes that are really bad, and there aren't that many that are that bad and that offensive simultaneously. It takes takes something for the actor to be equally (coughs) offended, because Armin Schillerman hates that episode. Oh, good. (laughs) That's at least a redeeming feature. (laughs) Do we have any any other questions? 
Mm. And there's always the in-joke, wasn't there, the um, original Star Trek, that every episode someone beamed down and he would die, wasn't it? Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, was it on purpose? Or did, I mean, it just it went on for many episodes, didn't it? The whole red shirt thing. Yes. I don't know if it was, I mean, whether it was something they were conscious of, I don't know. I've never heard anyone say that they were kind of aware of it as a trope at the time. I sort of always assumed that that as a sort of recognised trope, came more out of that period of reruns after the original series went off the air, maybe, that people started noticing how common it was. Yeah. Uh, and, and because it is so it is so kind of blatant. But again, of course, that's something, you know, we talked about Star Trek feeding into itself. One of my favourite Next Gen episodes, which I love, is the episode Lower Decks, which is basically, a, you know, insofar as Darmok is a riff on Arena, Lower Decks is a riff on the concept of the Red Shirt, because it's basically saying... Uh, Here's these people we, who we don't normally get to know. We're going to spend an episode getting to know them. And then, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, one of them ends up dying randomly. And, you know, and it's actually heartbreaking. And you, you almost always forget, I find when I go back and watch it, because you get so invested in their storyline, you almost forget that that's what's going to happen to her. Do you know what I mean? suddenly the main character. Exactly. That couldn't happen yeah. to a main character unless exactly. it's Tasha Yar. Well, yeah. And it, well, and again, I guess the death of, death of Tasha Yar is again a kind of subversion of that red, tro- red shirt trope insofar as they made a conscious decision not to give her a hero's death. I mean, so, say something like Jadzia Dax when she dies, uh, it, the way it's written, it's all quite heroic and tragic and there's quite She's drama. She's all the main villains at the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas Tasha does just die just like any one of those random... And that was definitely a decision and definitely a kind of, I don't know whether it's exactly an in-joke, but it's a kind of uh, acknowledgement, I suppose, in a sense of the way that Star Trek has tended to do that uh, and applying it to a character who you assume to be safe. And they did the same thing in Discovery, actually, with, um, I think everyone knew, yeah... yeah, well, yeah, with Culbert, that's true. But I was thinking even in the very first episode or the second episode, I think we all knew or we all thought this was before they fell in love with Michelle Yeoh and decided they wanted to give her her own spin-off series and and have her in every other episode. I think uh, to begin with, when Discovery started, there was kind of... Most people I had talked to were expecting Michelle Yeoh's character to die pretty quickly and probably in those first few episodes, as indeed she did. But they weren't expecting that uh, Ensign... Now, what was his name? Connor or something? He was the, the young guy who was in all the kind of pre-publicity. He was like one of the crew. They absolutely sold it. It was like, this is one of the cast. He was at all the conventions. He was doing all the stuff. He was going to be part of this show. And then he dies like about 10 minutes into the second episode or something. Uh, and I feel like, I felt a bit bad for that actor because I was like, you know, okay, yeah, great. You know, you're starting off your career. You, you've got two episodes of Star Trek. That's pretty cool. But at the same time, it's being sold to everyone like he's, he's a lead character and he really wasn't. Uh, but I think that was quite clever because it did actually, it absolutely set up this idea. You, you it's may not know who's a, exactly who's a main character and who isn't. And, uh, yeah, that idea that maybe it's this sort of Game of Thrones approach to Star Trek. Maybe no one is safe. You know, anyone could yeah. die at any minute. Um, I, I mean, personally, I think with Culber, it was, that more problematic for many, many definitely, reasons. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's definitely a, a new approach. And even with the very last episode, I thought they were doing that to Tyler. Uh, you know, it because is, it, it looked by the end of that way. episode like he was a goner. And then at the very end, they said, oh, he sent this, he's in an escape one, he sent this message and so on. And then you see him in the trailer for next week. But, I mean, they could have done that and that would have been, again, a pretty bold choice you know to just off one of your like main recurring characters uh so casually um i I don't love that 
I mean, I've never really watched more than an episode or two of Game of Thrones. I don't particularly feel that that adds anything necessarily to Star Trek, but I'm kind of aware that that's a thing that people expect from TV these days. Something about that kind of... increased stakes, whereas before yeah. you could get away with um, introducing a, a random red shirt or throwing a wharf around the bridge and just to show how high the stakes are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, oh, this guy's beating up wharf. He must be... It must be tough, but now people expect more. I suppose that kind of Game of Thrones, when they expect people to be killed off or the stakes to be that high. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, I mean, I think Discovery is an interesting case because obviously it's a weird marriage between elements of Star Trek that have been familiar over 50, you know, plus by this point years. And obviously, and Discovery is you know, very self-consciously tied into the original series. I mean, you know, we've had Spock on board for the last, you know, how many Pike. episodes and Pike um, and even number one, number one for about yeah. five minutes. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's Star Trek in 20, well, 2018, 2019, you know, it's very different, both in terms of the serialization and in terms of, you know, elements like that and the kind of storytelling and so on. It is, I mean, certainly for me as a kind of, I suppose, really a 90s, Star Trek fan. And obviously I went back and got into the original series and, the, you know, and so on, but that was kind of my entry point. There is something slightly like, I, I, I like discovery. I, I'm not sure if I love it exactly, but I, I do, I do like, it. I'm, I'm not one of the Star Trek fans who says this isn't Star Trek and I hate yeah. it, but it is definitely, there's an adjustment process there and it is very different. No, I, I, think. I, I feel at the moment as it is, I don't feel as strongly about it as the mm. other series. But I, I don't love it. Like you say, but I don't, I don't hate it. enough. I think just dismissing it as this isn't Star Trek is probably a little bit... It was a bit early on to decide, I'd say. People have said that about everything from... You know, they said that about The Next Generation. They said that about DS9. They, I don't know if they said that. Well, they said all sorts of things about Voyager. Uh, they said that about... Uh, to be honest, I sort of said that about Enterprise because, uh, as I said, I, I watched about six or seven episodes of Enterprise in first run and kind of lost interest in it. And I felt it wasn't really Star Trek. And then when I went back years later and watched it, I sort of felt like, what were you on about? You know, it's, it's, it's clearly Star Trek. I mean, it might not always be particularly good Star Trek. And I do think Enterprise, uh, although, you know, it has a place in my heart now. There are absolutely episodes of Enterprise that I love and elements of Enterprise that I love. There are also more more aspects of it that I don't like than some of the other series. Uh, but it's definitely Star Trek. I don't know, you know, where that was coming from. J.J. Abrams films... A little bit more on the fence about, I think. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, you know, maybe more that, with the detractors on those. You still have. Um, we were talking before about um, like unity and the, the federation. That, that mm. does have that element, especially in Beyond. You've got the theme of like in, in Darmok working together, cooperation. Yeah. I think Scotty has a line saying, "You can't break a stick in a bundle." Yeah. So it's still got elements. It's, it's a little bit more flashy and a little bit more in your face, but it's, there's still some trek in there. Beyond was the one of the three, uh, the only one that nice. I really enjoyed on first viewing. I've sort of come round to Star Trek Oh Nine. I never it's really, never quite got into, yeah. into Darkness very well, but uh, Beyond. I agree. It, that felt more like Star. That felt like what I felt other people were telling me they got from two thousand and nine, uh, and I still am like not not quite there. Every time I watch it, I like it slightly more, but I'm, I've never quite got to that point of loving it. I do, I love Beyond instantly, and it is because it felt to me it felt to me like a kind of big whiz bang noisy version of Star Trek, but it did feel like Star Trek to me. Yeah. 
Any, any other questions um, at the back? In the current social climate, we hear an awful about uh, toxic masculinity. Mm. Now, the first character I thought of in Star Trek would be War, mainly because of his, uh, his relationship with his son, Alexander. Yeah. Alexander's a very sensitive kid, and his father is completely different. Yeah. Uh, do you think they would treat War differently nowadays? Would they like would he be a, a decent dad for a start I don't know I mean uh, yeah we funnily enough my podcast we did an episode for Father's Day last year uh, looking at fathers in Star Trek and were kind of shocked by how awful most of them are you know uh, and Worf and Sarek were kind of uh, Worf, Sarek and Guldicott had a kind of top slot yeah, for like the universe's worst dad I mean yeah well absolutely uh, as in most things I think but um, that's an interesting question I don't yeah, I'd never really thought of Worf so much in terms of... I, suppose, I see what you mean about, like, he's certainly, like, very masculine, and, and there are... And I think he's certainly a terrible father, unquestionably. I, he, I don't sort of think of him in terms of what toxic masculinity means to me so much. Maybe because I'm thinking of that more in terms of, like, in relation to women, whereas I feel like Worf is more... He's sort of in his own world half the time. Do you know what I mean? And even he, among he Klingons, he's kind of in his own world. He isn't seems he? to be used as, as a device a lot of the time as well. So yeah. his, his opinions might change episode to episode depending on what they need him to do. They, need, they can't, in, in Next Gen in particular, they can't let the humans yeah. do something controversial. So they might get the Klingon to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I mean, but I do think, like, thinking about the idea of toxic masculinity, I'd say Lorca in Discovery is absolutely a character. He is almost the sort of, toxic version of Kirk somehow because because actually you know a lot of people think of Kirk as this womanizer they think of him as this quite dubious character actually when you go back and watch the original series he's not really quite like that yeah he's a little bit he, he always ends up with a girl one way or another but it's not really through his own he's not a lechy character particularly he's not kind of sleazy he's not do, do you know what I mean all those sort of things that we maybe associate with Kirk and that I think the Kelvin films unfortunately have kind of um have almost legitimised by making that version of Kirk more like that. But I think, you know, when you... Lorca is quite an interesting character because in some ways he is quite Kirk-like. He's kind of got the swagger and everything. But he is actually also uh, sleazy, creepy. Uh, you know, he sleeps with Cornwall under false pretenses. He, from in the Mirror Universe, has this very dubious relationship with Michael Burnham where, you know, they use the word grooming. Um, and he's just very kind of... I suppose there's that kind of... He's got this kind of machismo and this kind of, um, it's, it's wrapped up in all the stuff that's dark and nasty about his character. It is in a very sort of male way. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the critics of Discovery who were very, um, uh, who were, I suppose, maybe the ones I was alluding to before, who might have been the Trek for Trump uh, people were sort of saying, you know, this show can't present, basically, you, you know, you have, uh, say, uh, gay characters, you have uh, Saru, who's quite kind of, uh, well, you know, he's a, ma a male character, but is defined by being scared the whole time. You have these very strong female characters, confident female characters, that they were sort of saying there's an absence of a kind of strong male character. I, this is not to say the gay characters are not strong, but, you, you know, in that kind of traditional heterosexual kind of um, tough way that is not a villain. Uh, and I think, you know, maybe... They're, it doesn't bother me. Maybe, maybe they're onto something in a way that, that that is sort of what that first season of Discovery was kind of showing. Arguably with Captain Pike, 
that's very different. You know, Captain yeah. Pike is very kind of mascul- strong, masculine, kind of traditional uh, character, but um, very decent at the same time. But I, I think it's an interesting, you know, we are at a sort of certain point culturally where we're talking about certain things. And Star Trek has always reflected what's going on in the wider world. And Discovery, arguably, you know, maybe the allegory is less blatant in some ways because it's not like there's an episode about X issue and it's all very obvious but it does feed a lot you know a lot of the kind of rhetoric about Trump and um, you know all that all that stuff with the Klingons lots of people saw all this remain Klingon and this kind of nationalism as being tied into that I think the fact that that first season of Discovery actually one way or another has a lot of interesting kind of sexual assault and uh, storylines sort of feeding into that one way or another whether it's as I say Cornwall who is very angry with Mira Lorca and blasts his um, fortune cookies in, <laughs> kind of in revenge for, for sleeping with her in that situation, I think we're supposed to assume, whether it's the whole complex situation with Tyler and, um, and Laurel and what's going, you, you know, whether that is a sexual assault or not. I mean, arguably, I'd say that that's an example of where the, the allegorical aspect slightly undermines the message in a way but but definitely i think that the show was was being fed by some of these cultural concerns at the time and that, and that would be one of them any other questions <clears throat> sorry from a sort of advanced human culture point of view mm-hmm. um, i always like to compare how i think certain captains would have reacted in situations experienced by the others mm. like they say if you have a problem Picard will quote Shakespeare and Janeway will fire on it yeah. and I was, I was sort of watching um, Equinox recently where Janeway does some very questionable things mm. um, she almost as a sort of breakdown goes on a sort of vendetta I was curious like through your marathon re-watching it writing the book whether you felt there was a captain that sort of more accurately than the others showed how humans would react in those sort of situations and perhaps encompass more of the you know more accurate the human approach to things I suppose the answer is that humans are very different uh and as much as star trek presents one kind of sort of one future for humanity uh all those captains are quite different and they do deal with situations differently and as i say i'm not sure that janeway or cisco or, or, or any of the others would have dealt with the darmok situation the same there is also of course the fact that these the shows being written by writers to you know the captain gets the situation that they're put in i mean archer for example finds himself in all these situations where he has to keep doing awful things and feels guilty about it, you know, whether that's basically waterboarding a prisoner, whether that's um, kill it. He, he, he kills a handful of innocent... Well, not, I mean, you know, whether you say... You know, they, they destroy some Zindi installation at one point where there are people working there because they can't be identified. Uh, they, you know, they do all kinds of morally questionable things. I don't think that's really got anything to do with Archer. I think that's just to do with the storyline. And the fact is, traditionally, Star Trek would always offer an out for the captain to avoid making morally uh, dubious decisions. So um, there's the episode... I'm trying to think which one it is. There's an original series episode where there's two... uh, Kirk has to make a decision, and Spock wants him to do one thing, and McCoy wants him to do the other. Either way... A load of people die and it. it's, it's awful. It's, it's like either they eradicate the... Um, maybe it's the one with those things that look like kind of omelettes that are attacking people. Uh, is that the immunity, immunity syndrome? syndrome? I'm trying to think. I, think, I think it's the immunity syndrome. It, it, it may be a different episode. But anyway, there, there's this line of dialogue where he says to them, I want a third option. And that's, that's basically the situation. So I'm not accepting... Uh, it's the kind of the no-win scenario. I'm not accepting what you're telling me, which is that I have to do one bad thing or another bad thing and that there's no third alternative. And eventually they come up with something. And I think traditionally, 
Star Trek has always, the writers of Star Trek have always written and out. So when you seem to be in an impossible situation uh, that involves moral compromise, there is always a way out that doesn't involve moral compromise. And it's only really once you get to those later series, (coughs) so say in The Pale Moonlight being an example, and people debate whether Cisco did the right or the wrong thing in In The Pale Moonlight, but the fact is the writers backed him into a corner in a sense and he did what he, you know, what he had to do. And what Archer keeps saying is, you know, I'm doing what I have to do. I have no choice. I don't have any choice about this. When he, he leaves the uh, ship, when he steals their warp coils, you know, for example, um, it's, it, it's, it's purely a writing decision, really. Do you stick to that idea that we don't morally compromise our captains and therefore we have to write around these dilemmas? Or, you know, and similarly, say, next gen, Picard might be making a dilemma, facing a dilemma, making a decision. Say there's that episode with the guy who pretends to be from the future and says, and it's like, is he going to, what is it? Do they destroy the comet and they risk blowing up the planet or do they leave it? And however many, I can't remember, whatever. You know, they're basically a dilemma. Either way, they could make the wrong decision. It all goes wrong. Obviously, Star Trek is not going to let them make the wrong decision, you know, because that would be awful to watch <laughs> for, you, you know there's there are kind of certain assumptions but then we do have this assumption that you know uh the main cast are not going to be killed randomly and meaninglessly you know there are certain kind of narrative assumptions that the writers are are playing with um and i suppose for me when you look at like what would this captain do or what would that captain do a lot of it really is about what would what's going on at that time in tv writing and in the writing of that show and what are they going to allow how far are they going to allow things to go down that route? And how far are they going to pull us back into this kind of Star Trek safety net? Do you have another question? To what extent do you think that the lack of committed traction of old Trek fans to uh, Discovery is a result of there being a distinct lack of humour in Discovery compared to the other series? I'm not sure I believe that there is a lack of committed Trek fans latching onto Discovery. I think they're just very vocal, uh, and particularly online. And Star Trek's never had to... I mean, I don't, I don't know is the answer, because I've not seen, like, a survey or anything. But, I mean, certainly I didn't get the impression, I don't know about you, at the convention in October. Uh, and that was a convention where the, the two sort of big draws, I suppose, were uh, DS9, because it was their big anniversary, and Discovery. The Discovery panel was packed. Everyone was really excited to see them. There was a lot of love for those actors. I didn't feel any sense there that there was a kind of... What, what you see on Twitter, which is all these people saying, oh, Discovery isn't canon, go and watch the Orville instead. Uh, you, you know, and this kind of vitriolic hatred. And as I say, every Star Trek show has had that. And in the DS9 documentary, they even read out some of the letters that they got when DS9 was first airing about exactly that. This isn't Star Trek. How can you do this? You know, it's like, where's the spaceship? You know, I don't know. You know, why is, why have we got a Ferengi character? Uh, you know, all the same kind of crap, basically, that you get, I think, every time. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think I do have some reservations about Discovery. There are some aspects of it that I think are not what I would have chosen, if you know what I mean. I do find it slightly harder to, like you were saying, to work out how to sort of incorporate it in Star Trek more generally. But I think that that reaction is probably massively exaggerated by the internet and by this kind of polarising style of debate. And to the extent that actually a lot of people like me who quite like Discovery but maybe don't love it as much as they hoped they would um, for various reasons find themselves in an awkward middle ground where something like Twitter absolutely polarises them. The vocal people are on either side. And if you say anything that's like, 
if you're not totally picking sides, uh, it becomes quite difficult to you, you come under attack from one side or the other. It if you're was not all really. that kind of unease. Yeah, when I say committed, the committed nature is that kind of unease of yeah, I'm not quite sure whether I've quite found its place in my Star Trek. Yeah, universe. I mean, my hope is that I think Discovery's had a very rocky couple of years. You know, they've lost showrunner after showrunner. Uh, we, you know, we never really got to see what Brian Fuller was actually intending to do with that show. Uh, then those guys who took over, um, whose names I can't even remember, but they didn't stick. I was never convinced that they seemed to be the right people to do it. Then they were hoofed out for bullying. Um, Alex Kurtzman, for you know reasons I've alluded to, I have slight reservations about anyway. And also he's got a lot on his plate. He's now running like four or five different Star Trek series that he's trying to get off the ground. My hope... This is almost based on nothing. But, you know, with Next Gen, it did take Michael Piller coming in after two years to really kind of work out what that show was about and make the show that we now identify. That is why people love that show. Uh, Deep Space Nine, it really took Iris Stephen Bear coming in and saying, OK, what is this show really about and how are we going to drive it forward? Uh, I've no idea if Michelle Paradise, is that her name? Paradise? Well, uh, the, this new showrunner who's just been brought in, having written one episode is going to be that kind of Michael Pillis, Iris Dean Bear character. If it's not her, I hope it's someone. And at some point, Discovery becomes something where we are clear about what it is. Because one of my reservations for that show is I do enjoy it. I, I like I like all the actors. I like, I like the way it's directed. I think it's very stylish. Uh, I think there are a lot of really talented writers working on it. I'm still a bit unclear what it is that I'm watching from week to week, if you know what I mean. It doesn't, doesn't easily... Uh, like I, I know, I, I know what Deep Space Nine is. I know what Voyager is. I, do you know what I mean? I know what to expect. Discovery. I mean, they did that Klingon episode, and I was watching an episode of Game of Thrones. I was just like, you know, what is going on here? And I get like, okay, if the Klingons made, you know, there was, they did in the first season. They did an episode where the, the previously on Star Trek Discovery was done in Klingon. I felt like this was like, okay, I'm watching. Klingons have made this episode, you know, and that's, I suppose that's kind of interesting. Like the Captain Wolf series that never Yeah, exactly, out, yeah. exactly. I know, they should have given Michael Dorn a cameo in that episode, I think. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of, um, I don't, I, I, maybe retrospectively, if it runs to like five, six, seven seasons, we'll be able to look back and say, okay, these are the bits of those first two seasons where they were kind of heading in the direction of what they're going to do. That's my hope with Discovery. Or maybe it just carries on being kind of a bit wacky and off the wall. And I just hope that all Star Trek isn't going to be as confusing <laughs> as that going forward in a way. Like, I'm sort of thinking, you know, this Picard show is presumably going to be quite different. Uh, the other shows are going to be quite different. I feel like I almost have a, an expectation with all of these shows they've announced that I understand what the tone is, what the sort of genre is. You know, the Section 31 show, which isn't like would be way at the bottom of my priorities for what I want the Star Trek series to be about. But at least I have a sense of like tonally what they're probably going for, what they're, what, what bit of the Star Trek universe they're carving out there. I've never really understood what bit of the Star Trek universe it is that Discovery thinks it's carving out, unless it's this kind of prequel to TOS. Uh, and, you know, I, I loved Lethe in the first season. I loved that kind of working into the Sarek and Spock arc. 
Uh, I'm kind of interested in seeing Spock and Amanda and everyone in, in this season, but I'm, that, that can't be what this show is about, I don't think. So I'm still slightly unclear what is this series about, really. But then it took, um, it take, like you said, it, takes, it took every series a little while to get going, and yeah. Enterprise seemed to be, right as it was finishing, it seemed to get its personality. Yeah, yeah. But So hopefully... We'll get, there. Yeah, I th- we'll get I think, there. I think we'll get there, and maybe... My hope is that those of us who've been a little bit lukewarm or a little bit unsure about Discovery in various ways will get to a point where we see what it was heading towards, and then maybe we can go back and rewatch those first few series and think, okay, okay, I could sort of see where they were. Hopefully they were heading somewhere. That's, that's, my, that's my only hope, is that it, it gets somewhere that makes a little bit more sense to me. It's yeah. not a problem with Discovery if they are trying to join up with the original series. Mm-hmm. The original series was written at the time of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And you had the Klingons very much as perhaps as the Russians. Yeah. Yeah. Query. This is what we've got. We've gone from it's almost as though you have Star Trek maybe at the time of the Second World War, because the allegory, and the Cold War. Hence yeah. we have this open possibility with the Klingons moving to more of the the well, the original series explanation. Uh, I say this as somebody who's watched Star Trek since 1973. So I do feel we are in danger sometimes when we're talking about perhaps the sexual orientation. Let's not forget the context in which it was. Exactly. We we have the benefit of hindsight. It's 1964. Yeah, absolutely. American society in 1964 was extraordinarily conservative. Yeah. Yeah. But then I suppose there's this question of why is Star Trek obsessed with going back to the 1960s? And why, you know, why with Discovery? <clears throat> and I'm, I'm not totally coming down on one side or the other, but I was surprised that they went back to Talos 4, that they went back to that storyline. Uh, you, you know, okay, having Captain Pike is one thing I sort of assumed. They just like, everyone likes the idea of Captain Pike, even if they don't really know who he is. Um, that was a weird decision. I didn't, dislike it exactly but i just it that it does make me wonder who is it for because like i'm a pretty long-term you know not quite as long-term as you but you know reasonably long-term sort of diehard star trek fan and that's not really what i want so who is it that who is it that they think that what they most want from a new star trek series is to go back and sort of feed into the original yeah, series in these, in these little tweaky ways because you'd think that um it's, it's a modern series it's trying to get more for some, some newer viewers perhaps yeah. and it's got this old in-joke essentially like hey guys look where, where we're going this week I don't think a lot of people would have had that reaction that oh it's Talos 4 I know it's kind of and they had that like montage going all the way back to the cage which yeah. I, I didn't mind I thought that was quite sweet in a way like it's quite charming <laughs> but at the same time it's charming but I'm just like I just don't it, it does make me wonder like who is the presumed and this sort of go back to what you were saying who is the presumed viewer for this show because if actually it's about getting new what they always said about the JJ films was about getting new viewers in and they and they did they get did, new yeah. fans in who then go back and watch all the old stuff and so on um I don't know I just I do feel there's a slight obsession with TOS and with you know ever, well ever since Voyager really you, you know with Enterprise we had a prequel and like you say uh people started to like Enterprise when it started to feel more like a prequel to TOS rather than as they started off, they called it a sequel to us. Some, it was a phrase that I heard bandied around. It was more, it was much more influenced by kind of contemporary uh, space exploration at NASA and these kind of things, and kind of de- almost deliberately 
uh, keeping it a little bit away from TOS. And then in that fourth season, they're much more kind of committed to that kind of this is a TOS prequel. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we had the JJ films sort of going back and, and retreading these same characters and so on. Now we've got Discovery doing them all again. Um, it does feel a bit to me, and maybe this is because I am a long-term Star Trek fan, but it was Next Gen that got me in. Yeah. So TOS for me was like, was almost a prequel in itself, if you know what I mean, the way that I approached it. Uh, but I suppose there is this kind of idea that like Star Trek means TOS and if you're going to do Star Trek, somehow that's, that's the magic formula to bring people in. And I just, I just, I, I don't really think that's, I think that's a misperception ultimately because that's not what got me in Star Trek. That's not what got a lot of people that I know in Star Trek. And I don't think, I think it is a slightly, in some ways it's a slightly conservative way of, of doing it. And I just don't, I, I, I get it with the JJ films, there's this sense like everyone's watched Star Trek at some point and they're going to go and watch those films and they're like, oh yeah, this is kind of like that Star Trek that I watched, but much more exciting and loud and busy and, and more like a, a Marvel film that I might go and see the week before or whatever. I'm not really clear with Discovery if that's the same goal, if you know what I mean, if, if that's what they're going for. But, you know, I don't know. Like I say, I, I feel like I'm, I'm bashing Discovery. I don't hate Discovery. I, I quite enjoy it. I, you know, I enjoy having a new episode every week. Uh, I am also looking forward to some of these other series, particularly the Picard series, because I'm hoping that's going to do something a little bit different that might be a bit more up my street. I wonder with the Picard series if there'll be more room for allegory and uh, maybe they'll tackle something like Brexit or um, Trump (laughs) America, perhaps. Well, yeah, I've been wondering about that because the Picard series, I know when it was announced, Patrick Stewart uh, originally said that the reason he wanted to do it was he felt that the world needed John McPicard. Yeah, and needed that, not just more Star Trek, but needed Picard. And I think everyone at the time was saying, oh, it's going to be all about Trump and all about this kind of uh, nationalist politics and so on. And I was thinking, well, it might be about Trump, but actually Patrick Stewart was a big voice in the referendum, the Brexit referendum campaign. You know, he was campaigning uh, to stay in the EU and so on. When he says that, he may be thinking more of Brexit than of Trump. Yeah, and that, again, is, you know, obviously with the Federation, it'd be very easy to have a storyline. I, I have no idea what the storyline of, of the Picard series is, but there was a Star Trek novel uh, way back in the 90s, I think, that was about a planet seceding from the Federation. It was Vulcan. And what was that? It was Vulcan. Oh, were they really? Okay, right. And they voted to stay in. Oh, that's good. How many referendums did they need <laughs> to get the right result? But, you know, um, but yeah, you know, that would be a very obvious uh, storyline for a future. I mean, if you want an allegorical storyline, it's a pretty easy one. I don't know whether that's what the Picard series is going to be about. I suspect I always sort of thought it'd be more about Romulus and the kind of the beta quadrant and, and all because that's sort of all opened up in that period of history. But um, definitely it seems like it's going to be about something maybe a little bit political, a bit yeah. more kind of, because we think of Picard as this great diplomat and so on. Um, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe it's going to be Picard, you know, space archaeologist going off on adventures off and, and digging body, up yeah. magic. Yeah, exactly. Digging up magic art- artifacts that cause the end of the universe or, you know, who knows? But I mean, I'm hoping for something a little bit more grounded and a little bit more kind of, um, I don't know, less Peaceful, wacky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we'll see, you know. Yeah. I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. That's mm-hmm. all right. Yeah. Um, thank you again for coming in today, and it's been really interesting. And um, yeah, we'd just like to um, give. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
like to know, just let everyone know where they can find you online. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to find me, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Barrett's Books. That's double R E double T, like Majel Barrett, though no relation, I'm afraid. Uh, you can, if you want to listen to my podcast, it's called Primitive Culture, uh, and it's on the Trek FM podcast network. You can find it on iTunes. Uh, and if anyone's interested in my book, Star Trek The Human Frontier, I've got some copies uh, over there if anyone would like to buy one and have it signed or, or whatever. Um, and thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming. Previously on Trek.fm, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. He's like, oh, we can't be vague. And he's like, I'm not doing it. Is that vague enough for you? Yeah. That was so great. I know. Yes. Tyler's having these little quip answers, quick-witted, you know, when he's talking with uh, George O. And she's like, I'm going to trust you, but if you betray my trust, I'm going to hunt you down. Literary Treks. And we have the USS Titan and... They're, they're going so far as to make modifications to people's quarters and the different living arrangements to account for various alien physiologies and all that sort of thing. Because not only do we have just a diversity of alien species, we have a diversity of people who aren't even humanoid, which I think is a really cool thing. And something, you know, you can do that in a book at the time more easily than you could on television for sure. So I think they make really good use of the medium to present us a, with a crew like this. Warp 5. Because he had a near-death experience, he's now all of a sudden upset that T'Pol won't admit her feelings for him. Right. Right. And now look, I can understand how the near-death experience triggers that, but this the payoff of him asking to leave should have happened three episodes from now. Yes, he should be grown up enough. Earl Grey. I mean, of course, the difference with Geordi and Data is that they're regular characters and they're in almost every episode. <laughs> so there's more of that potential for interaction and Guinan isn't in it as many. And I know it wouldn't have been as possible at the time, but I can dream about the next generation starting with Guinan being like a regular there every week. I mean, hey, you know, Quark's a bartender and he's a regular on DS9. Why not Guinan? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Let's go back in time and change that. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at 
Clara Jean MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter, and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right.